0: Hi, we're Grace and Clara, here to shake up the world of women's health.
1: We know firsthand how intimidating it can be to speak up when it comes to issues like your menstrual cycle or menopause.
0: That's why we create Unprocessed, a weekly podcast where we dive into every aspect of women's health, from mental well-being to physical nutrition. We're here to ask the
1: burning questions and encourage us all to advocate for ourselves.
0: So get ready for some smart, cheeky and witty discussions about all things women's health. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're having a lovely week so far. I have a confession. Since recording this podcast, I have been forever curious about hormones and what lays ahead as I get older. I'm hearing the terms perimetopause, hormone replacement, brain fog, night sweats, hot flushes, and I want to know what does this all mean? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel in the dark about my body, wondering if what I'm experiencing is normal. And in the next 10, 20 years, what will happen to my body? This is why we invited Dr. Ginny onto the pod. She has a special interest in peri and metapause, which led her to write the best-selling book, The M Word, How to Thrive in Metapause. In this chat, we deep dive into it all, from how to identify when you're going into metapause, the impacts of contraception, misconceptions about peri, and how to advocate for yourself when you are in a doctor's appointment. Dr. Ginny, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to sit down with you. Now, I'm always curious to ask my guests, why did you decide to pursue this career?
1: I mean, I think I had some fairly naive ideas about what a doctor was when I was a kid. Um, medicine's nothing like it is on TV or in movies, but I've I've got too much ADD to kind of stick with any one thing. So I, not long after I finished medicine, I had a few kids and then went off and did a journalism degree and went off into journalism and then that kind of I really fell by accident into everything that I've done. I do a lot of different things so I probably have multiple different careers and to work to tell you how each one started (laughs) it's a a whole long story but it it, it has been a hub and spoke where medicine has been at the centre of it and being a communicator has also been at the centre of it.
0: I read an article that said the next generation, our kids, they're probably going to have 20 careers. And that really excited me because that whole old school thing of having one job for the rest of your life has gone out the window.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all get too bored, right? So, and, and I think you want to leverage your various skills and you, there's probably no job that allows you to leverage every one of your skills. So. It's just good to have a variety if you can. It's not for everyone, but it's been really good for me.
0: Yeah. And honing in on that, what made you dive into the world of perimetopause and metapause?
1: So it's really funny. I got approached by a um publisher, a book publisher. Um, to write a book. And I need to explain the books before that that I had written were such a terrible experience on every level. I hated every second of it. And I had always just said, I'm not ever writing another book. You would have, like, wild horses could not drag me to another book writing. And I said, No, 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 no. And someone said, Listen, I really think you should take this meeting. And I, I really liked the girl. But she said, I want you to write a book about menopause and perimenopause. And I was like, Sorry, what? what how old do you think I am? <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, wait. I'm 50. Okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And I have been kind of noticing I'm the host of a podcast which is educational for doctors, and every time we would have like a menopause specialist in, I would notice that I was – completely out of my depth. I had absolutely no idea what was going on in the world of menopause and perimenopause. Like so many doctors, I I really had no idea at all. And then I was thinking, wow, I really should upskill in this area. It's a really important area of women's health. I don't know anything about it. And I thought, well, if I go on this journey and I write a book while I'm on this journey, that will be amazing. And I think the more I got into the story of menopause and how women became so negated and so um, ill-served by the medical profession, the more hooked I got and the more outraged and the more I wanted to help. And I've sort of leveraged that into a whole lot of different things. And it's a really rewarding part of medicine actually to practice in.
0: Absolutely. And we're seeing it On a social media front as well, a large portion of our community is women. And when we post around perimetopause or menopause, the influx of messages saying, I thought I was going crazy. I don't know what's wrong with me. I had to get a brain scan. Like the stories are crazy. And it's all because two things we're noticing. um, People don't know how to advocate for their bodies. And people don't know enough about their bodies.
1: Yeah, definitely, and this is an area that's been shrouded in mystery for so long, and so much misinformation there. The history of it's quite wild, and and I, I'm not surprised the women end up just going, I have no idea where to turn.
0: Absolutely. So let's get into it. What is perimenopause, and how does it affect the body? So
1: menopause itself is a single day that happens 12 months after your final menstrual period, only you don't know it's your final menstrual period at the time because you don't know when the next one's going to come. Often by this stage you've been, they've been a bit erratic, they've been, you know, maybe every three months or you even might have got to eight months and thought, that's it, I'm, I'm home and I'm out of, you know, period city and another one will come. Um, but you never know it's the final one until you look in the retrospectoscope. and few of us are that organised that we write every single thing down. But that final day, Uh, 12 months from um, the first day of your last period, that is the day you hit menopause. The lead up to that is called perimenopause. And during that period, there are two distinct phases that we talk about. One of them is when your ovulation, it either happens but not at a great level so you're not producing a huge amount of progesterone. And don't forget your ovaries are designed to give you babies. You are designed to make a whole lot of eggs that are meant to go off and meet the sperm of their dreams and, um, and you know, if that doesn't work next month we try again. And so part of that is ovulation. After you've ovulated you produce progesterone and if you don't ovulate or if you have a pretty half-assed sort of uh, ovulation, you will produce either zero or not a lot of progesterone at all. And um, the first half of perimenopause is when you're not really ovulating or if you do ovulate, it's not a great ovulation, so you have very low levels of progesterone. Um, And then in the second half of perimenopause, it's actually a smaller window probably. Uh, It's probably not a 50-50 split. Uh, You also start to lose estrogen as well, so you're not making a lot of estrogen either, but it's not 12 months since your period, so it's not technically menopause but that period can last sort of in studies up to about 10 years but because we don't have a blood test for perimenopause spoiler alert there is no blood test for perimenopause no one can say oh I've looked at your blood test and you're in peri can't tell you that you're not menopausal and Other than that, all bets are off because your blood tests are going up and down like a yo-yo, your hormone levels. So testing them is completely meaningless and it is not advocated by any specialist. It's not something we should be doing. We really go more by your symptoms and really importantly for people who are listening to us is not only your symptoms but also your cycle. So if you are someone who has a regular 28 or 30 or 26 or 32-day cycle but it's regular, That is not perimenopause. You are ovulating and you are in your reproductive phase. You're at the end of your reproductive life, but that is not peri. And if you get all the symptoms that are now starting to become really prominent on social media, things like depression and sadness and even some aches and pains, it doesn't mean you're in peri you've got those other symptoms, but it's not hormonal. And that's important because hormonal treatments won't work if it's not a hormonal problem.
0: You've had your last period and then your 12 months of peri. After that's 12 months, is that when you enter menopause, or can peri go for amount of, a long amount of time?
1: So peri is the time where your periods become a little bit irregular and you have a vast constellation of symptoms, you might not have any, um, that last until you hit menopause proper. Everything after menopause is the post-menopausal period, so that's where your, your eggs are no longer even trying to make any more. They're just like, forget it. They're going into retirement. They're not making any hormones either. And your estrogen levels actually peter out and actually hit their lowest point about two years after you've had you've hit menopause proper, but everything leading up to to menopause is peri, and everything after that is postmenopausal.
0: So then, things like the pill and the marina, how do they affect our hormones, and can they affect the stages of perimenopause and menopause later on?
1: So while you are on the combined oral contraceptive pill, so that's a pill that contains both estrogen and progesterone. It's giving you those hormones at a level that will stop your ovaries from actually releasing an egg. That's how they work. Your It tricks your ovaries into thinking, oh, we can't release an egg yet. We've got an egg in place. That's all happening. We don't need to go and give you another one. Of course, while it's suppressing your natural cycle, uh, You can't tell what you're in. You can't tell whether you're in peri. You can't tell whether you're in menopause. We generally don't like having women who are certainly over the age of 45 on the contraceptive pill because there are risks. It's quite a high dose of estrogen compared to, let's say, something like hormone replacement therapy. It's a much higher dose. So you really need to be exceptional, but a lot of women has been on the pill for years, come off it and never get a period again. They go, oh, I guess I went into menopause at some point during that time I was on the pill and they missed out on the whole Perry thing because they never had it. They just they were on the pill that was masking all of their symptoms of their ov- their ovaries not quite ovulating as well as they should have. They seamlessly went through into menopause without any problems at all. And good luck to them. That- that's amazing. In terms of the Marina, that is a contraceptive coil or an IUD, an intrauterine device, that has progesterone in it that is meant to be released a small amount every day. Now, studies show that the levels of progesterone in the blood are not raised by the progesterone that is in the coil. So as a result, you should not have any symptoms whatsoever, but women do experience a lot of symptoms and we need to work out why that is and if it is related to the progesterone in the marina or something else. Um, having said all of which, m- the point of the progesterone in the marina is that it really reduces your blood flow so you won't have periods. So you could have your final menstrual period, only it doesn't. you never bled. And you'll you'll miss it altogether. So a lot of women who haven't had a period for years and years and years, and don't know whether they're in peri or menopause, or whether they've you know they don't know what's going on, we sometimes do blood tests for them, not to tell them whether they're. Whether or not they have gone through menopause, and the only reason that's important is for until you've gone through menopause, you're fertile. You can still have a baby. It's not great odds, mm-hmm. but you can still have a baby. And um, if we're gonna, if your marine has expired, if it's been five years since your last one, we need to shove another one back in. Or another form of contraception. A lot of women not necessarily having a lot of sex by that stage, so they don't need the most intense forms of contraception. Some of them are just happy to do withdrawal or even condoms at that point if they're only having sex once every couple of weeks or something, which is really really common. Um, but some people are like, "No, nah, I need that marina back in again. I don't want to go back to heavy heavy bleeding," and that's completely reasonable. That's that's fine, but we wouldn't put another marina in if you've already gone through menopause and you don't need it. Like what would the point?
0: So if you're on the pill for a long amount of time, is that good or bad for your hormones? It
1: makes no difference whatsoever. So it doesn't okay. determine that you'll go into menopause later or earlier. It doesn't change anything. It gives your ovaries a bit of a rest. But what's really interesting is your ovaries pick up as if they'd always been going. A note for women if you went on the pill years and years and years ago because your periods were diabolical, maybe they were irregular, maybe they were really heavy, maybe you were having acne breakout, none of that is going to change when you come off the pill. That'll all go back to being there. And a lot of women have forgotten why they went on the pill in the first place. And as far as they're concerned, they've come off the pill and the pill ruined them because now, you know, all of a sudden they've got like horrible, you know, irregular cycle and they're very heavy. No, that's just you. That's the way it was before and it's the way it is now. Um, But other than that, it doesn't affect anything. It doesn't change your fertility. So for women who are on the pill and worried that they're going to have reduced fertility when they come off it, no, they won't. And it's the same thing. It won't influence at all your menopause journey.
0: Wow, that's really interesting you said that because we like to get a whole perspective of the picture and not just one opinion. So it's really refreshing having you on and saying, no, it won't affect you, especially because I'm on the pill and it's a concern I have because I'm getting all this information. You know, it's hard to navigate sometimes.
1: Look, science is a really interesting beast. So um, I practice, I guess, what would be in the realms of what I would call evidence-based medicine. And what that means is, Just because I'm smart and I really have worked this shit out and I just know that if you do this and you do this, this will happen, doesn't mean it will happen. And a lot of us have got a lot of things wrong by just guessing. So what we like to do is create what we call a randomized placebo controlled trial in which we look at large groups and then we look, you know, we give one group a pill, we give one group a placebo and we see what happens to them. So we can get objective and ideally reproducible outcomes every time that, in short, it is the pill that is the variable. There are a lot of health practitioners who work outside that space. And for them, you know, getting those trials is a nice to have, but their experience counts a lot for them and what they feel they know in their heart of hearts is what's really important to them. And I I really get that. And that's certainly the way we practice medicine really until the you know 1900s we were practicing on you know you'd get the smartest doctor in the room and whatever they said was was right even though it was subsequently you know proven incorrect we in the scientific space like to do multiple trials and even if we think we know something we will continue to do trials and we'll be quite happy if the evidence changes that just means science is getting better that's okay Um, but that's a very different space to those who I guess say the pill is really bad for you because In their heart of hearts, they believe it, even if the science doesn't tell them that. It's just a different way of practising medicine, and I I think everybody needs to find where they feel most comfortable getting their advice.
0: So then when it comes to food and lifestyle factors, can these um, elements drive perimetopause symptoms earlier?
1: Absolutely. So um, everything from, you know, if you are a terrible sleeper, um, menopause will make that worse. Definitely. If you are someone who has had poorly managed anxiety and depression right through your life, it will come back in perimenopause almost guaranteed one in three women will get anxiety and depression and a lot of them have never ever had it before they get it for the first time in perimenopause but what we know is that women who have had it before whether it's postnatal or as a teenager or any other time in their life it's almost guaranteed to come back during that perimenopausal period that's actually the peak period of risk for women for anxiety and depression in their lives it's not postnatal it's actually in perimenopause and that's the highest risk for suicide as well so that's really important like we need to be talking about this more because I think it's reasonable that um you know postnatal depression is very well funded and you know you can get lots of sessions with a clinical psychologist if you're a 48 year old woman going through a crisis of confidence and severe anxiety and terrible depression and you're about to quit your work and your husband is about to divorce you you don't get anything, like you'll just go to the back of the queue and that's really quite sad given we know statistically that's the group who needs it the most. We know also that having um, carrying too much weight um, also increases your hot flushes and the severity of your hot flushes and just your general ability to cope. It also impacts on your that loss of confidence that women really experience around perimenopause, lack of sleep, um, aches and pains. You know, anybody who's carrying too much weight, they're going to have more knee pain and more back pain. My advice to anybody who's listening to us who's at the beginning of this journey or maybe hasn't even set foot on this journey is if you can get yourself as healthy as you can be before you go into full-on perimenopause, you will have a better time of it. Plus, you're getting older. This is happening to you because you are getting older. Now is the time to recognize I get all of my patients saying to me, oh, I've never had high blood pressure before. Yeah, you don't because you were 30. Now you're in your 50s and you've put on 15 kilos since you went into perimenopause. Yeah, you're going to get high blood pressure now. Now is the time to wrangle control of all of the parts of your life that you used to be able to get away with when you were younger and bring them back and actually get yourself as fit, as healthy and as mentally healthy as you can going into the journey. And if everyone did that, I'd, I'd, I'd be out of a job.
0: Hey, it's Grace here. Just want to quickly interrupt the episode to say... It's time to start nourishing you. Join the eight-week program and get eight weeks of easy, delicious meal plans with full shopping lists. And at $5.50 or under per serve, it couldn't be more affordable to eat healthy. Each week, we'll give you a range of meals to cook that are quick and easy to prepare with minimal waste. You don't have to be a master chef to enjoy these nutritious meals. Plus, fun online workouts, mentoring from industry experts, and access to our exclusive sleep school. Spots are limited. Join now. Now let's get back into the episode. Then I want to dive into from there, synthetic hormones. So what are they to start with? So
1: we know what your hormones are. We've been able to put them in a petri dish and deconstruct them and we know exactly what formula um, they are in. And we can reproduce them to a certain extent in the form of synthetic hormones um, that do a lot of the job. They are the hormones that are in a lot of things that are used for, let's say, IVF and fertility treatments. A lot of them that are used in the combined oral contraceptive pill as well as the progesterone-only pill and older forms of HRT. These days most doctors prescribe what we call body-identical um, hormone replacement therapy, which means they have been able to actually identically reproduce the hormones that were in your body that you wow. naturally make so they're completely body identical and they've been a real game changer in terms of the side effect profile being so much better and also the safety profile just being so much better um, we are yet to see this sort of really take the contraceptive pill um, stage by storm we don't have that as much yet but certainly in the hormone replacement therapy space those of us who practice it all the time tend to use more body-identical estrogen and progesterone rather than just the older-style older, older style synthetic ones.
0: And why is that? Are the synthetic ones outdated or are they not good for the body?
1: In terms of not good for the body, that's a really complicated picture. You mm-hmm. mostly use it to control symptoms, um, but on the whole, it, it is actually quite beneficial for the body if you get the timing right, actually, regardless of the type. But in terms of side effects and also safety, Um, And even efficacy, these body identical hormones are actually just better. So um, way less depression, for example, because you can get depression from the pill and you can certainly get it from hormone replacement therapy, um, a a, a lower, if any, increased risk of um, breast cancer. Um, which is really important compared to the synthetic ones. You also have, you know, less side effects like clotting, um, increased risk of strokes, those sorts of things that we got with some of the older forms of estrogen and progesterone, the synthetic type. So
0: not really used that much anymore. So when would someone need to use these? Like what conditions? The the body identical one? Yes.
1: Yeah. So as a rule, the indications, that means that when doctors say, yes, you can have... Um, hormone therapy are symptoms of menopause. In this country, symptoms of perimenopause are not an indication. However, I have never met a doctor who who actually works in menopause and might prescribe it for perimenopause because actually that's when it's most, most needed, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Low bone density. So women who um, we've done a bone density scan for whatever reason, um, in this country to... Um, qualify for the really heavy hitting drugs to prevent fractures you have to be over 70 or already have had an osteoporosis related fracture so if we just go listen your bone density is terrible but I don't want you to wait to, I don't want you to have to get a fracture to go and get onto these super duper pooper scooper kind of nuclear bombs of, of bone building. We could just put you on hormone replacement therapy and that will build bone for you. So we know that it really dramatically builds bone and reduces your risk of fracture more importantly. So that, that's a really important thing uh, to note. They're the two main indications for using hormone replacement therapy. But for example, we know that it does amazing things to your skin. For example, it builds collagen, it helps build your skin barrier, it lowers the pH of your skin so that you don't get as irritated or as red. If you came to me and said, "Hey, um don't have any hot flushes. My mood is fine. I'm not having any aches and pains. not having any real issues, but I just really want young skin. Can I have some HRT? My answer is absolutely not. Um, I need to have a medical reason to prescribe hormone replacement therapy. It's not something that you can just have because you want it.
0: And then when it comes to perimetopause, what are some misconceptions about this condition? Oh my goodness.
1: Where do I start? Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Number one, um,
1: suck it up, there's nothing you can do, it's just your hormones. Um, so this is, you know, the punishment for Eve eating the apple and the you know, off the tree of knowledge. It's just what women have to bear, that and period pain. Um, absolutely not. Uh you can't get pregnant once you've started perimenopause. Oh no, yes you can. Um often you'll ovulate twice in a month because your brain oh, is no. really trying to Yeah, your brain's really trying to crank your ovaries to squeeze the last bit of juice out of them and um, you often will ovulate and enough to have a baby it is sporadic but I can't tell you when it's going to happen so you do need contraception something that I'm very concerned about is um, a lot of people are on estrogen without progesterone now estrogen will do all the heavy lifting in terms of your symptoms although we're learning a lot more about what progesterone will do particularly for the brain sleep mood that kind of thing um, recently but some people will go on estrogen without progesterone. Now, if you have a uterus and you put estrogen in without progesterone, there's a risk that you get an overgrowth of the lining of the uterus Mm -hmm. and that that can turn into cancer. Now, it doesn't always, it's just a risk, but we always have to give you progesterone with your estrogen if you have a uterus. Otherwise, it is very, very, very risky. So that's the, that's, I guess, yeah, one of the, the big misconceptions. I think another misconception is that um, if you're moody, you just need an antidepressant, you know, Mm. and you should just have counselling. I'm not saying we would never use an antidepressant, but that is certainly not first cab off the rank. First cab off the rank is hormone treatment. But I guess the biggest one is that hormone treatment is dangerous. That's the biggest misconception that's out there and still trying to reassure women that they're not putting something dangerous into their body is, has been really difficult and really sad. I think women naturally deprive themselves, naturally are fearful and naturally feel guilty about taking anything that might make them feel better, um, whether it's an antidepressant or it's a hormone replacement therapy. And just unpicking that and saying to women, hey, it's, it's safe. It's a good medication that will not only solve your symptoms but probably be fairly protective of your heart and your brain as well at the same time in terms of later on heart disease and dementia if we give it to you early enough. So that's, that's I guess, the bit that I would am bit sad about.
0: So why why do people think it's dangerous?
1: So this all relates back to a study that ended early in 2002. So I hope it's okay. I'm just going to give you a bit of context. No, please. This. Go for it. From a whole lot of what we call cohort studies, and what a cohort study is is when you observe Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and you just make notes about what happens to them. So we're not doing a randomised placebo controlled trial. We're not telling you what to eat or what to exercise. We just ask you how much you're exercising, what you're eating, what medications are you on, and there are large like cities in Australia and. Dubbo's one for example we've got them all over Europe all over the UK and there was a really big one in the US there were two of them with hundreds of thousands of people that showed that women who were on hormone replacement therapy had less heart attacks than women who didn't go on hormone replacement therapy and this was sort of back in the 80s when HRT was kind of almost at its peak it really peaked around the 1990s and so some scientists said what if we gave women hormone replacement therapy not to treat their menopause but actually just to prevent heart disease? So they created a trial of about 110,000 people and they gave half placebo and half a synthetic HRT that we don't really use anymore. And what they did was after six years they noticed that for every 10,000 women taking a placebo they found 30 cases of breast cancer. And for Hmm. every 10,000 women taking hormone replacement therapy, there were 38 cases of breast cancer. That was enough for them to say, we can't justify this study anymore. We're going to shut it down. And they shut it down and they announced that they were shutting it down because hormone replacement therapy causes breast cancer. Hmm. Now, let me tell you something about this study. The average age of women starting on the hormone replacement therapy or the placebo was 63 20% were over the age of 70 when they started their hormone replacement therapy. When you took the subgroup of women, they didn't ask them about their um, menopause symptoms because that was not the point of the study. It was not treatment for menopause. It was purely to prevent heart disease. When they took the subgroup of women who were in their 50s and most likely to be taking it at times that women would be taking it in real life today, they had no increased risk of breast cancer. What they did have was a lower risk of both osteoporosis fracture and bowel cancer but that wasn't mentioned in the in the um press release all that they said in the press release when they shut down this study was hormone replacement therapy causes cancer and from that day as far as we know within 12 months 80 percent of users of hormone replacement therapy had thrown it in the bin and were no longer using it so many The drug company who made that form of HRT went into bankruptcy from all the lawsuits and every doctor who had been prescribing it got sued for prescribing it and causing breast cancer. So as a result, doctors refused to prescribe it. Drug companies stopped investigating menopausal women, stopped making hormone replacement therapy, and the whole issue of hot flushes and debilitating symptoms, women were told, suck it up, there's nothing we can do for you because hormone replacement therapy is dangerous. And it wasn't, you know, at the time, there are a whole lot of um, hormone specialists and peak bodies for menopause who said, hang on, that is completely wrong. You are looking at this study all wrong. But they kind of got drowned out and didn't really get heard in the media. And there's a massive hangover from that today. And mm-hmm. even though multiple trials have been done since that have shown that no, it is not unsafe, that hangover still exists and it really tainted all hormone treatments, including the pill. There are a lot of my patients who say, I don't want to put hormones in my body, even though the pill has delivered women choices about their reproductive life. It gives us choices around our careers, our futures, who we want to marry. We don't get stuck with the first you know guy who knocks us up. We have a lot of options now that we did not have before, thanks to the pill. It's been a really liberating force for women, and yet there are so many women who are terrified of it, which is just devastating I and mean, it's, it's silly. And in case of hormone replacement therapy, the doses are much lower because we're not trying to stop you from ovulating. We're just trying to give you just enough to get rid of your symptoms. So that's really the hangover of it. What was great about that study is it did give us what we now call the timing hypothesis, which tells us that if it's been six years since menopause we or less, we can start you on hormone replacement therapy and you will derive benefits. If it's been more than six years, don't do it. It actually could cause more harm than good. So that that's a really good sort of framework to work with and we now know that's the absolute sure, but that's how this rumor started and it's really done so much damage to women.
0: Do you think that they can change this perspective around it or is it like a gradual thing over time?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I specialise in menopause, so I think that women who come to see me kind of, I guess, know what they're going to get um, to a certain extent. But... I used to hear women talk about their symptoms and say, what do you want to consider in terms of, you know, what would you be open to in terms of dealing with this? And they would say, I don't, no way hormones. Or they would say, here, I don't know what's going on with me. I'm hot all the time. I'm so depressed. My guts have gone to the dogs. I've got aches in my joints. I don't know what's going on. And I would go, hey, that's menopause. These days, women are coming to me. They've seen something on TikTok. They've seen something on Instagram. They come to me and say, hey, I want to talk about HRT. I'm pretty sure I'm in Perry. Interestingly, I would say these days about one in 10 consults, I'll ask women, my always, my first question was, when was your last period? How regular are your periods?" And if someone tells me, oh, they're coming every 28 days or every 30 days, I've got to break it to them that what they have is not hormonal, that it is actually not, <laughs> not perimenopause and they're actually not going to benefit from any hormone replacement therapy. So it's it's really been a very different conversation now because women are really advocating for themselves, very aware that what they're going through might indeed be peri and menopause, which is great. Um, I'm super happy about that. But um, sometimes I have
0: to actually say no back off can't have the hormone replacement therapy it's not for you so do you think social media has been a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to educating women around their bodies
1: oh totally a good thing um with a couple of caveats so I think that when I look at the menopause influences there's a lot of doom and gloom like mm-hmm. here are all the terrible things that happen to you when you're in menopause and Perry, whereas I would say yeah that's all true, and it is it's i'm not going to lie it's it's all true, but oh, we've got such great treatments for it i mean, and it's not just all hormone replacement therapy, a lot of it is you know, getting fit, getting healthy, maybe this is the impetus you need, looking after your mental health, getting enough sleep, like these things that you've never needed to worry about your body, you have to now, but like, they're really effective, they actually work super well. We've got other medications, there are some complementary and alternative therapies that some people are really into, they don't have the evidence, but that doesn't mean that they don't work. Women have got lots of options now that can help them get through this period, and I wish it wasn't so doom and gloom. Um, the other thing is that we doctors, for reason that I don't understand and clearly I'm not this because I do so much media but there is a feeling amongst doctors that if you are in the media you're a charlatan and everything you're saying is bogus and that's beneath me to go and do media. I think that's maybe changing a little bit, but doctors didn't occupy this space or not doctors who are evidence-based have not occupied this space, which has really left it open to women getting really exploited, um, being sold a lot of supplements that don't necessarily, well, there's no evidence for them. I'm not saying we don't don't work it's just that the studies that have been done didn't show a benefit if we had bigger studies maybe they would show a benefit but we don't have any evidence that they work these things are super expensive often come on a prescription on a subscription basis so they they take money out of your wallet month in month out Um, and women are spending a fortune on various therapies that are really unproven and could potentially delay her getting treatment that could work for her from a doctor. But it is the woman's choice. She's a big girl. It's her right to decide exactly which way she wants to run this journey and as long as she's happy, I'm happy. Um, I think what's really important is that we have choice in this space and I wish there were more doctors putting the evidence-based voice into onto TikTok and
0: um, onto Instagram, but, you know, it is what it is. So, besides Instagram and TikTok, where can women go to get educated? So, if you, I
1: guess, want to be in the evidence based space that we spoke about right at the beginning, so, you know, what do scientists consider safe and effective? I would look at a few peak bodies that are independent of drug company funding and independent of government funding. They tend to be Um, you know, independent with a board of professors often. So what I'm talking about is the Australasian Menopause Society, the International Menopause Society. So Australians have been very proactive in menopause and they've frequently being Australian presidents of the International Menopause Society and they have great information there as well. The Jean Hales Foundation is an excellent hub of amazing evidence-based resources and they include stuff about complementary and alternative therapies as well which is a really good thing for people who are interested in that. Um, I would also say that the North American Menopause Society which is now just called the Menopause Society Don't get me started about why that is so annoying, (laughs) like they're the only ones. Okay, fine. Um, But they do have really good information on their website and um, well worth a look. FYI, in 2015, which was the last time they did a big review of all complementary and alternative therapies, for symptoms of menopause, actually came up with quite a few that they thought were quite promising. They just reviewed that in 2023 and said, no, there's absolutely nothing in the complementary and alternative medicine space that is worth doing. We've got more studies and the results are in, they don't work. I, I think that if you're a doctor, that's probably very, very meaningful to you. If you are somebody who wants to take that sort of stuff, you could possibly take it with a grain of salt, but I would run it by your pharmacist to make sure that whatever you're taking is not dangerous or doesn't interact with the medication that you're on.
0: And then I want to ask, you've created Don't Sweat It, and I would love to know what is it and how is it helping women? It's very new.
1: Um, So Don't Sweat It is a... an offering to help menopause uh, at workplaces become more menopause friendly. So what we know is that uh, from pretty good data now that 10% of women find their symptoms of menopause so debilitating that they quit work and a further 14% either go part time or reduce their hours. Um, and 8% either ask for a demotion or refuse a promotion on the basis of the symptoms that they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Of those who stay connected to their workplace, about 80% feel that their productivity has fallen off a cliff and they feel really lack a great lack of confidence. And what that means is that's costing women a huge amount of money, according to the um, Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, that is somewhere between 17 and 35 billion Australian dollars a year that is lost to menopause symptoms because of women quitting and then or taking on a less well paid job and reducing her superannuation along with that at the at the time of her life she should be earning the most because she's at her most senior. Um, But it's also a problem for workplaces because replacing each senior woman that leaves is really expensive and there's a a period of time where her productivity is lower and so it's costing companies a lot of money. So we have come up with an online course. We do webinars. We do workshops. We create menopause policy or we consult for menopause policy along best practice lines, international guidelines around what um, a workplace should have as best practice menopause policy. Um, We really advocate uh, peer-to-peer networking so that women support each other rather than trying to get an in-house doctor or an in-house nurse to be all things to all women. Women often just want to talk to each other and just, you know, whether that's a Slack channel or a Teams channel or something like that, to allow them to talk to each other. And we train the menopause mentors for women in the workplace. Uh, And we do menopause executive health checks. We do a large number of things. We've also run retreats, both corporate and um, for the public. And they've been fantastic, just really educating people, mainly in the evidence-based space. I'm not going to lie, we don't really talk a lot about supplements for which at this stage there, there really isn't any evidence.
0: That sounds amazing. And I didn't realise the stats, so that's shocking. It is. I mean, if you think, I mean,
1: I don't know, Grace, if you think about your mum and what she was doing at around the age of 50, but often we daughters thought that our mothers were just, had just turned into the biggest bitch alive. Um, sometimes <laughs> when we, Sometimes when we work with women um, like our bosses, we're like, my bosses are psycho. It's really demotivating. Um, and, in fact, what's going on is completely hormonal for her. And I think just increasing understanding and education all around but then moving to the next step which is saying you don't need to put up with this. Okay, this mm. is what it is. Now you've recognised it. Let's go get you help. How can the workplace step up for you at a time when you need it the most because things are not going great for you at the moment? But we reckon we can turn you around in a matter of weeks, maybe months are the worst. But it should, no one should have to just put up with this in perpetuity. It's silly.
0: So then for women who are experiencing these symptoms and they're going to the doctor, how do they advocate for themselves? What is your advice?
1: It is really, really tough because GPs in Australia are under the pump. Um, they sort of given five minutes per standard consultation, and I know for myself, a lot of my patients will book a long consultation, and I'll have an emergency, you know, consult squeezed in over the top of that. So I don't have time for a long consultation, and if they don't have a particular interest in it. Don't forget, they haven't been educated because we weren't educated from the time that the Women's Health Initiative study ended in 2002 Till sort of now. There has just been zero discussion of menopause amongst doctors. So I understand why it's not really handled very well by most doctors. And I was one of those doctors, you know, five, ten years ago. Um, So I get it. But I think it is really important to, I guess, get a doctor that will listen to you. And if they won't listen to you, no matter what, the, the next stages don't matter. You're going to need to find yourself a different doctor. You know, there are menopause symptom checkers that you can do online, then print it and take it with you, going, hey, do you think this could be menopause? Do you think it could be perimenopause? Um maybe take someone with you who can advocate for you because some people when they get into the doctor's office just go (laughs) white, go blank. Um, And to have somebody who's listening and can take notes and then can advocate for you can often be helpful because women don't feel confident and they don't feel right about pushing back against someone like a doctor, which I completely get. If none of that goes well, the Australasian Menopause Society, which you can Google, has a find a doctor um tab inside it now these doctors have paid money to join the Australasian menopause society that sadly does not necessarily mean that they are up to date with the latest and greatest treatment um i can't promise that but they will listen and they are interested and that's your first port of call that's the most important thing because i think women need to feel heard and Mm. hopefully as um because we've, we've been having, as far as I know, about 20 doctors a day join the AMS in the last little while because oh. um, menopause is having a bit of a moment. I think as those doctors get upskilled, um, mm. it will be even better for women who are looking to engage with um, a doctor from the AMS.
0: Dr Ginny, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And for all our listeners who want to learn more, we'll put links in the show notes below. This podcast, please give us a five star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. We want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives. This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander
1: peoples.